So uh, I think it was last year, maybe about a year and a half ago, I had the chance with a, a, a couple other guys, a small team from Grace Church, to go over to Haiti. Has anybody been to Haiti? A couple of you. So Haiti is um, it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it's a, a completely different world than, than, of course, what we experience here. And so going over there, it's like, it's like kind of life-changing, really. We're, we're, there's a missions organization that we work with, and I was, our team was kind of getting to know them. And so we spent a lot of time with them just kind of seeing um, what, what they do and what the situation is in Haiti and thinking about like, what our campus can do um, as, as part of the, to, to help in some way. And so, um, you know, we got a chance to hang out with the missionaries that were part of this missions organization. And they, so the, the village, I mean, it, it, maybe you've seen pictures, I don't know, maybe you haven't. I mean, it's, it looks like um, it's a post-war country. Like everything is crumbling, nothing's finished. Everything is like in some stage of being built or completed, but it's looked that way for decades, for years and years and years. Of course, they had that massive earthquake um, a few years ago, and where literally hundreds of thousands of people died. It's crazy. Um, so anyway, you know, we're, we're like walking in the village and uh, with the missionary, and they're kind of introducing us to, you know, some people that they have gotten a chance to know. And, and then one of the missionaries said, hey, do you want to go to, um, to see the witch doctor? And we said, uh, yeah, you know, let's, let's go. And so um, this is a guy who, it, it, so voodoo in Haiti is a big deal. It, it's like very, very prevalent. And so this is, the, so the, the witch doctor in, in a particular village would be seen as like the leader of the village in many ways. And people had um, a, a respect, but also a fear for him. And so this guy had recently been injured and they had been developing these missionaries. This one in particular that, that took us there has been developing a relationship with this guy and talking to him about the Lord. And it's amazing to see like how, you know, knowing a little bit about voodoo and, you know, this guy's reputation, seeing how God is like working in his heart, sounding his heart. So he had broken his leg or something. Uh, I, I think it was his leg. So it was very debilitating and he was in bed when we went there. And so, you know, we, we kind of peeked around and said, do you mind if we come in? And he said, yeah, he welcomed us in. And, uh, and, and we asked if, so, you know, he, he was hurting. He, he was trying to get a surgery, but the nearest hospital was miles and miles away and he couldn't afford the surgery. And so you can imagine in a culture like that where you walk most places, you know, he's in bad shape, he's hurting. And, uh, and so we asked, we said, can we pray for you? And he said, yes, you can. And so it was so cool, like it was so neat to experience that, to get a chance to, to see him. It, he would have been a scary guy, uh, but to see him and to see what God is doing inside of his heart. And so it's with that context that I look at a story like I'm about to read you and I go, wow, God is powerful. Let me, re let me read you this story. This is, this is from a guy, um, this is in Mexico. His name's Robert Duran. And he's from Bethany Fellowship Missions. And so I've been a pastor, I don't know, 15-ish years, something like that. And you know, we, we work with missionaries and whatever church I've been at, we work with missionaries around the world. And you hear stories from missionaries um, from places that they go, particularly dark places of God working in like miraculous ways. And you see and you hear about some crazy, crazy stuff. And so this guy is a missionary in Mexico. And I want you to, just, I just want to read this story to you. That's what he says. He says, our horses carefully picked up. 
their way <laughs> along the rock-strewn path. Finally, after two hours of travel by truck and eight hours on horses, we could discern the outlines of the small Huichol village in Mexico. We looked forward to seeing friends that we had made in this remote village during the last three years of visits. So they've been visiting this place for three years. First to notice our arrival, the dogs and children loudly brought the news to all those indoors. Huichols are patient and shy, but one woman, Maria Teresa, beckoned us at, the, at her door. Her husband, Santo, was sick and wanted to see us. Their low-walled, thatch-roofed house was built of stone with no windows. Santo lay in bed, in a bed made of blankets, which hardly raised him above the dirt floor. He greeted us weekly and, weekly and was caught by a spasm of coughing. The first time we had met, three years earlier, a villager led us to Santo, one of the most feared witch doctors in the village. Before we could introduce ourselves, he shook my hand and said, Robert, I've been waiting for your visit. Surprised, I asked, how did you know my name? His reply was, the guiding spirits left me yesterday. They told of your coming and that they could not stay while you were in the village. Now, after many visits to the village and to Santo's home, 18 people had become followers of Jesus. Today, Santo was happy to see us and he wanted to talk. Allow me to pray that I might receive Jesus Christ and follow him, we heard him say. Joyfully, we asked if he was willing to confess his sins and receive Christ as Savior. He nodded. Three times I began prayer, but Santo could not get the words out of his mouth. Finally, after we commanded demonic spirits to leave his body, Santo was able to pray. Just three months later, Santo's wife told us that one morning, Santo had risen from his sleeping mat and asked for food. She made him tortillas, and as he ate, he told his neighbors gathered in his house, this is my last meal. Tonight, Pastor Roberto's God is coming to take me to his house. That night, he passed into eternity, a Christian saved and transformed by God's grace. And he says, the kingdom of God is greater than the powers of darkness. So I, I, I don't know what you feel, like what goes on inside of you when you hear a story like that. Like, I've... I've had the chance, because of what I get to do in the church and the interactions with people, to hear lots of different stories like that. And I, I don't know how it sounds to our ears, because we live in this culture that, like, we don't talk that much about the non-physical world, the spirit world. So we can hear a story like that and, and like, not know what to do with it. You know, like, how does that, how does that, that doesn't even fit into my framework, you know, into my thinking. Like, is that, can I believe that? Is that something that's true, you know? Like, is that something that still happens today? Is it something that happens today in our culture? Like, a lot of times we hear about these things coming from other places, other dark, closed places to the gospel. Are, are demons really at work in false religions like voodoo, right? Like, we can hear this, and we can go, I don't even know, I don't even know what to do with this. Well, this is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about... Uh, the spirit world, I guess, the unseen world. And I want to talk about it in the context of a miracle that Jesus did 2,000 years ago that I think shows us um, his power and his authority in a way that we haven't talked about in this series that we're digging into. So if you got a Bible, do me a favor, grab it, flip it open to Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, 
And so um, we're, if you're visiting with us today, we're in this series that we've been doing, uh, kind of a summer series for us on the life of Jesus. And so I've been very excited to do like a longer series, just looking at Jesus from a bunch of different angles, right? And so the first few weeks, we talked about different prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And then right now we're in this section, just looking at different miracles that Jesus has done and like digging into them and thinking about what it tells us about Jesus and what difference it makes in our lives today. So, so again, this, like where we're going to jump in here in Mark chapter 5 has a context, right? Con- and, the, and the context is important. The context tells us things like what happened, wh- uh, what's written, why it's written, right? And so we're kind of jumping in here, but there's a context. Last week, we looked at um, Jesus walking on water, right? And Jesus, like, controlling the wind, stopping the wind. So he had, Jesus, we said last week, has the power to manipulate the laws of nature, And we said he has the power to control the weather. And I said last week, I said another time, Jesus calmed a storm. Like he's on a boat and he like calms this raging storm. Well, where we're picking up is right after that experience, okay? So right before Mark chapter five is Mark chapter four. And in Mark chapter four, Jesus calms this storm. And so Jesus has just demonstrated his power and authority over the natural world, over the physical world. And now what we're gonna see is Jesus demonstrating his authority over the supernatural world, over the spiritual world. So check it out. This is Mark chapter five, and we're gonna pick up right at the very beginning, verse one. This is what it says. So they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding nearby, uh, on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Well, he gave them permission And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off. They reported this to the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid, which is interesting. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region, which is also very interesting. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with them. Jesus did did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And it says, all the people were amazed. Strange story, right? 
This is kind of a weird one. So, okay, so where have we been over the last few weeks? So uh, as we started this little chunk on miracles, we talked about Jesus changing water to wine, right? That was the first one that we looked at. We said Jesus has, like, the power to transform matter. It's not a normal power. That's not a normal gift. Jesus has the power to transform matter. Last week, we looked at really two miracles. One, Jesus walking on water, and we said Jesus has the power to manipulate the laws of nature, right? And then Jesus calming the winds or calming the storm. And we said, Jesus also has the power to control the weather. And now, this week, we're looking at, you know, how Jesus exercises, not exercise, but exorcises these demons. And we see that Jesus has power over the supernatural, the spiritual world, the forces of evil and darkness. And I've said this in the past, you know, we, we did a, a series on end times, eschatology is what's called, end time stuff. So looking at like when Jesus is going to come back, like what that's going to be like, what judgment is going to be like. And I talked about this back then. Sometimes we can be tempted to think that, you know, God and Satan are like uh, like the yin-yang. You know, you know that yin-yang symbol, black and white? It looks like two like teardrops in a circle. And it, what the yin-yang is, it's like equal opposites, right? Like they're opposite, contrary forces that are like interconnected with each other and interrelated. They're e- one's black, one's white. They're equal and they're opposite. But guys, listen, what the Bible reveals to us and what Jesus demonstrates all over the place, we see it here in the passage today, stands in direct opposition to that belief. So Satan is not like the equal opposite of God. That's not, what, that's, that's not what Satan is. It's actually very interesting when you read in Revelation and you see like what the end is gonna be like. It's no contest. Like the battle that Satan builds up for is actually not a battle at all. Satan is a created being of God, right? God created Satan. Satan was an angel, who a powerful angel, who chose to fall. He's a fallen angel. And so God is not the equal opposite of Satan. Another angel is the equal opposite of Satan, right? Another powerful angel, maybe an archangel like Michael. Michael is an archangel that's named for us in the scriptures. But Jesus' power and authority and judgment over the spiritual forces of evil and darkness is sound, right? Like he is so much bigger and stronger than Satan and any of his cronies. They are already defeated by Jesus. Their judgment is coming and they know it. And so we see that right here in this passage. Okay, it's important for us to get that right off the bat. It's not like Satan's the equal, or his demons are equal opposite of God. God is so much more powerful than them. Okay, so let, let's dig in a little bit uh, with this and see what we could apply to our lives. So this is another passage that's got parallel passages to it as well, parallel versions of it. So we looked at the Mark passage in Luke chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 8. So Luke 8, Matthew 8. They also tell this story. It's interesting. I encourage you to read these. Like when, when there's a story that's told in multiple gospels, I encourage you to read them and compare them. It's interesting to see like what each one reported from their perspective, right, from, from their experience with it. And so one of the things that, 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 you know, as you're kind of digging into this yourself, it's a relatively big difference that Matthew includes that Mark and Luke don't. I want to I just explain to you real quick because I think as you, as you dig into this, you might look at this and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Is this an error here? Like, how do I understand this? Let, let me explain it to you this way, okay? So uh, go to the next slide. What is this a picture of? Well, that's former President Obama, right? 
and he's getting off a plane, and he's there with his wife, Michelle Obama, and his two daughters, right? Is that accurate? It's accurate, right? Okay, so that's how, like, that's how I would describe it. Maybe that's how you would describe it, right, as we look at that picture. How do you think, like, a reporter that's writing an article would describe that picture? Well, they might say something like, President Obama and his family landed in Washington, D.C. today from a trip to da 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 right? And that would be accurate. That's President Obama and his family landing in Washington, D.C., wherever, coming back from a trip forever. That'd be accurate, right? How about this? Might they also say this? President Obama landed in Washington, D.C. today from a trip to... That would also be accurate, right? Even though the family's not mentioned, that's still an accurate statement, right? And so why is it still appropriate to, to just mention the president? Even though, like, clearly we can look at the picture. If you were there when he landed, you could see it wasn't just the president that landed in Washington, D.C. today. It was also the president and family. Actually, there were also people, like, driving the plane, you know, pilots and, you know, stewardesses, whatever it is. Other people were there as well. Why is it appropriate to just talk about the president when you're reporting something? Well, because he's the president, <laughs> Right? Like, he's the leader of the free world. And even though his family is really important as well, they're not as important to the leadership of the nation. Right? Like, he is the president of the United States. So it's appropriate to just, like when you're reporting something or you're telling a story, it's appropriate, and we, and we do this all the time, to just mention the really big one, right? The really powerful one, the really important one. And so it's actually, this is, theologians see the same thing happening here in the different accounts of this story that we just read between Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Because Matthew, when he tells the story, he says there's two demon-possessed men there, right? And, and almost all the rest of the story is exactly the same, right? Like Jesus comes and he lands and he exorcises the demons and they go into this herd of pigs and the pigs jump off the cliff. They're crazy pigs, right? Possessed pigs jump off the cliff and they all die. Like, what are the chances that that story happened twice, one time with one demon-possessed man, another time with two? It, it didn't happen, right? So they tell the same story. One of those men was named Legion, right? And he would have been the more prominent of the two. This is what theologians, how they understand this passage, and it makes sense to me. He would have been the more prominent of the two, the more powerful of the two, the more destructive of the two. And so Mark and Luke only mention the one. They only mention Legion. Maybe there were more. Maybe there was a group of these guys that were possessed, and they all were living in the tombs, but this one guy, Legion, was the most powerful. He was the most dangerous. He was the most prominent. And so that's the guy that Mark and Luke mention, while Matthew mentions another guy as well. You tracking with me? I encourage you to read those. There's other minor differences. In fact, I'll bring a couple of them up here that um, just sort of add to the story, that give us a fuller picture of the story when you read these parallel passages together. So, so let's dig into it a little bit. So Jesus and his disciples, they go across a lake, right? And they go to this region called the Gerasenes. And this man with an evil spirit, with an unclean spirit, sees Jesus and he comes up to him. So this man would have been possessed by an evil spirit. That's the terminology that we would use today. He would have been possessed by an evil spirit, possessed by a demon. And so, of course, we have to use our imaginations. Like, what would this man have been like? You know, what would he have looked like? What would, what would he have acted like? We have to use our imaginations here a little bit. But needless to say, this would have been a scary guy. This would have been a scary dude, right? And so he lived in the tombs, which, so often in that culture, um, when they buried somebody, so think of Jesus. Jesus was buried where? 
in a, in a tomb cut out of rock, right? Oftentimes when they bury people, that's how they bury them, usually limestone tombs. So they'd be like big rocks of limestone in the hillside, and they would cut kind of caves or tombs out of them, and that's where they bury people. We dig a hole, and we bury people six feet under, right? They, they break through rock, and they bury them that way. And so this guy is like living in the tombs, um, driven from society, just living with dead He saw dead people right? Just living with dead people all the time. That's his existence. And so he was strong as well, really strong. They chained him with iron chains, and he would break through those chains. They shackled his feet with iron shackles, and he would break through those shackles, like just incredibly strong. And he was tormented. And I want you, like sometimes we can think, uh, this demon-possessed guy, like he's evil, he's bad, he's terrible. This was a man who was possessed by a legion of demons, by a big group of demons, right? And I want you to just like, like humanize him. Sometimes we can dehumanize him. Humanize him, like get the image in your head of how tormented this guy would have been. It says day and night, he just roams around the tombs and the hills, just crying out and taking stones and cutting himself with stones. Like imagine this man's existence, how terrible this, and we don't know how these demons, you know, found their place in him. We don't know. Maybe he was part of, you know, cultic practices, pagan practices, and he opened himself up to these. We don't know. But regardless, like this is a poor, tormented man, right? And so it says in verse six that he saw Jesus from a distance and he ran to him. And this really affected my heart because I want you to think about this. Like, like think about the, uh, the conflict going on inside of this man. So he would have seen, he's tormented, he's struggling. He would have seen Jesus from a distance and his life of hopelessness, which I am certain that's what he felt, right? His life of hopelessness. For the first time, he thinks, he sees Jesus and I'm, I'm sure in his mind he thinks, there's hope. There's someone who could free me. Like there's someone good there, someone powerful there. I'm sure he didn't know all of who Jesus was, but in himself, right, he'll go, oh my gosh, there's somebody that could help me. And so he takes, I imagine him taking, and I'm reading into this a little bit, but I think it's appropriate, using every ounce of power he has, every bit of his will to run over to Jesus and collapse at his feet. And I promise you, those demons that were living inside of him wanted nothing more than to go the other way, right? They would have no desire to run up to Jesus. That wasn't the will of these demons. That was the will of this man, right? And so this man's will wins, and he runs to Jesus. And so this uncontrollable, incredibly strong, demon-possessed man collapses down on his knees in front of Jesus. And I want to be clear here. This is not worship, right? Like a lot of times when we think getting down on our knees in front of Jesus, we think worshiping him. In fact, his disciples did that when Jesus got back in the boat. We looked at last week. This is not worship. This is submission. This is forced submission, right? This is the lesser kneeling down before the greater. And so then he screams. So again, it's like, I imagine this guy, every ounce of strength he has to run over and collapse down in front of Jesus. And then like the demons take over again. And it says he screams at the top of his lungs. Like you see the aggression, right? He says, what do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, in God's name, don't torture me, 
right? Like he's yelling at Jesus. You see his, his loud, aggressive behavior. This, this statement, what do you want from me? It's an interesting expression. To put it in, in our language today, our terminology today, we may say, say something like this. Like, why are you bothering me? Same thing. Why are you bothering me, Jesus? So literally, this thing's yelling at Jesus, and then it calls Jesus by name, or they call Jesus by name. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know this before I read, before I was studying this week. Some of what I read said, in the ancient spiritual world, identifying a spirit by name was a way of gaining control or power over that spirit. Right, so like, let's go back to our president uh, metaphor. The president has staffers, right? All kinds of staffers. What do you think he calls the staffers? He calls them by their first name, Stephen or Bob or Judy or whoever it is, right? What do you think the staffer calls the president? Mr. President, right? Because they are less than him in terms of power and authority, right? It's the same thing. And so you have this demon calling Jesus by his name, by his first name, trying to like intimidate him, trying to, to get power and authority over him. This is what the, a quote from some theologians that I read this week said, in the ancient world, identifying a spirit being by name was considered a way of gaining control over it. So the demon may be trying to exert spiritual influence over Jesus. And so it's interesting, this demon's first interaction with Jesus is kind of a power play, right? Like he's trying to intimidate Jesus, even though he was compelled to bow down before him. It's interesting. I never really thought about this before either. But Jesus, when Jesus interacted with humans, like even his disciples, it took them a while. Like they were confused about who Jesus was, like what his true identity was as God the Son. It really wasn't until after he resurrected from the dead that they go, oh man, I get it now. I see what you're saying. You you are God made flesh, right? It took them a while. They were confused of Jesus' identity, human beings, but not the demons. Not the demons. This demon knew exactly who he was dealing with. He recognized who Jesus was immediately, instantly. And so then Jesus commands the demon to come out of the man. Immediately, Jesus exerts his power. He exerts his authority. Now, the demon, you know, may have tried in a long shot to intimidate Jesus by calling him by name, but very quickly he realizes he's in trouble. And so the demon then invokes God's name, Jesus' father's name, which is interesting, right? In God's name, in your father's name, he says, don't torture me. Of course, he knew what Jesus had the power to do. He knew who Jesus was, right? And so Jesus asked the demon what his name is. And so you see kind of the, the tables being flipped here. You see Jesus taking authority over him. And the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many, which is also interesting. So do you know what a legion is? A, a, a legion is like a group, of, so it's a, it's a number, it's a group of servicemen or mili- a military unit of 6,000, right? 6,000 people, that's what a legion is. And so that, of course, begs the question, just how many demons were inside of this guy, right? Again, like put yourself in his shoes. Who knows how all of this happened? But imagine the torture that this guy felt. Like it wasn't just one strong demon that was living inside of him. It was an army of demons, and they were terrified of Jesus because they knew what he had the power to do to them. 
And so they begged Jesus not to send them out of the area. Jesus had already told them to come out of this poor man. And it's interesting, in Luke's version, he gets more specific. He specifies when they say, please don't send us out of the area, don't send us into the abyss, is what it says in in Luke's version. The abyss, if you don't know, is a place of like, so it's kind of like confinement or prison before final judgment. So you see it in Revelation, the bottomless pit. Satan spends time in the abyss, in the bottomless pit for a time. So it's this place of confinement where they have no influence, but it's right before judgment. So they beg him, like, please don't begin the judgment process with me. Don't send me to the abyss right now, right? Because they knew what was coming. They knew what Jesus had the power to do. And so in this strange request, and it is a strange request, they asked that they be sent into a herd of pigs, right? And so they wanted to stay in that area, and, and I think they wanted to, have, to continue to have at least some of the power and control that they had previously. When they were inhabiting this man, he was the strongest. Everybody, nothing could hold him, could contain him, right? And so everybody is afraid of him. He had power and control over that area. I think they wanted to still maintain at least some power and control over that area. And so uh, they asked to be put in, you know, to this pack of pigs, which if it wasn't so strange, I mean, it's a crazy thought. Like imagine, imagine if they didn't all jump off the cliff and die. Imagine what this posse of pigs would have been like. This, this posse of possessed pigs would have been like, you know. Like I imagine with guns and like biker jackets and tattoos and like shooting, right? I don't know, anyway. So they, so they don't, they, they, they jump off the cliff. Strangely enough, Jesus agrees to their request. He gives them permission. And, and I don't know what you think, what, like when you read that, I think why? Like why, why would Jesus do that? Like why would he acquiesce to their request there? But of course, Jesus knows what happens next, right? By the way, the pigs would have been unclean to the Jews, right? And so pigs and Jews don't go together. Pigs are unclean. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean that as a joke. They're, they're not kosher. They're unclean. God said you can't, you, can't have, you can't be around them, okay? But this was a Gentile. This area that they were at was a mostly Gentile, which, which is non-Jew, right? It's just a fancy word for non-Jew uh, area. And so it made sense for this herd of pigs to be there. And so these demons go into this herd of pigs and they freak them out, right? Literally, they spook these pigs, and all 2,000 of these pigs stampede off of this cliff into this lake, and they all drown. Well, this, this leaves us with some questions, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I read this, I'm like, whoa, this is so weird. Like, this is just a very strange story. I don't understand how all this goes together. Why did Jesus try to do, like, why did he do it this way? Um, why did he choose to exorcise the demons this way, sending them into all these pigs? So all these pigs lost their lives, right? I mean, they're pigs, right? But they still have life. That's valuable. And, and then you think about the owner of the pigs. Like, he lost out on a lot of money, I'm sure. Like, I don't think they had pig insurance back then. I don't think that was a thing. I don't know if that's a thing right now either or not. But certainly, like, this guy would have been out of some money. Well, I, I, from what I read this week and I, as I processed through it, Jesus had to show people very clearly and tangibly that these demons had been exorcised and that this demoniac, this demon-possessed man would no longer harass this area, right? And so Jesus demonstrates, in doing it this way, he demonstrates his power and authority over everything, right? 
the spiritual powers of darkness over Satan and his cronies. Again, he shows his power. And what does that do? Well, it speaks to people that saw it, right? Even people like you and me that read about this 2,000 years later, right? And we go, whoa, like who, who is this Jesus, right? It provokes faith in us. And so what we see here is through God's, through Jesus's economy, his understanding of things, the life of pigs and one man's money pales in comparison to this poor man's bondage to this legion of demons. Like in God's economy, you and I are incredibly valuable, more valuable than pigs, more valuable than a fortune of money, right? And so the herdsmen, those tending the pigs, they saw what happened. They ran, they run out to all of the townspeople to tell them what the heck happened, right? So all these people come out and they see Jesus and they see this possessed guy who's no longer possessed, right? And he's sitting there quietly and dressed, which again, you know, like, like put yourself in their shoes. They're like, whoa, wait a minute, this is the same guy. It's interesting, in Luke's version of the story, Luke says that this guy hadn't worn clothes in a long time. Like, he was always naked. He was running around harassing people naked. Like, scary guy, right? And all of a sudden, they come back, and they're like, wait a minute. He's sitting there quietly with clothes on. Something's going on here, right? He says he was in his right mind, which means he was, he was sober. That's what that uh, word means. He was uh, uh, under control, self-controlled, sound-minded. And so when all the townspeople saw this, they were afraid they, they were terrified. They were overcome with fear. They were seized with alarm. Why do you think that is? Like, like, just try to put yourself in their shoes. Instead of being in awe of Jesus and what he's just done, they are terrified of him. Why? You know, it's interesting. They, they would have had a certain fear of this demon-possessed guy too, right? I mean, he, again, he was a scary guy. They tried to control him. They couldn't control him. And so basically, they just sort of contain him in the tombs and stay away from him. So they had this certain fear of him, but their fear of Jesus was different. Why was it different? Well, one guy, you know, the demon-possessed guy, they could look at this and they could like dismiss this guy. He's crazy. He's a lunatic, right? I'll just ignore him. He's in the tombs, I'll stay away from the tombs. He's confined, he's crazy, I go on with my life as normal, right? One, they could look at that way. The other one was different. Can't do that with Jesus, right? And so it says, they pleaded with Jesus. They begged Jesus to leave them, to go to another place. Please, you're scaring us. You just healed this tortured soul. Please leave us. Like imagine the, the thinking there, the twisted thinking there. See, Jesus' authority was revealed to them. He's a lion. Revelation 5.5 5 says he's the lion from the tribe of Judah. And I love, how, I love how C.S. Lewis says it in Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion either, Right? Like, you can't control Jesus. You can't just ignore Jesus. You can't just relegate Jesus to a crazy guy. And so there's implications to that. One guy you could dismiss, you know, he's crazy. Go on with life, avoid him, go on with life. Jesus, you can't do that. There's implications to who he is, personal implications. Clearly, he, Jesus, was the one who was in control. With, with the crazy guy, with the demon-possessed guy, they kind of had control. I'll just put him over there and I don't think about it, right? With Jesus, he's the one in control. He's the one with power. 
And they didn't want to submit to his authority, right? They wanted to have the power. They wanted to have control. And so when all of a sudden someone else with the power and control comes in, they're afraid. And they're like, please leave us. They could ignore the one guy. They couldn't ignore Jesus. And so they ask him to leave. They beg him to leave. Like, think about that. The giver of life, right? God made flesh. They asked to leave them. Contrast that with the guy who was just set free. Like, like compare those two. No longer possessed by demons. He experienced all of the things that they did, right? All of the power that Jesus had in setting him free. But he experienced it in the most personal, up close, up front, firsthand way possible, right? He's not afraid of Jesus. In fact, all he wants is to be with Jesus longer, right? It's all, it's all he wants to get more time with the one who gave him freedom, to get more time with the one who gave him peace. It says that he begged to go with him. Again, I imagine, like, like try, to, try to put yourself in that scenario. Imagine this guy on his knees, literally crying, begging Jesus, please let me go with you. Please, I have nothing here. Please give me more time with you, right? He begs to go with Jesus. But Jesus responds, and he says, no, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. He says, no, go, go testify to other people what's happened. Show them your life. Go to your family, go to your friends, go to the people that once knew you and tell them what happened so that they can come to believe too. Because listen, even though I love you, I didn't just do this miracle for you. I did this miracle so that others would believe as well, right? And the man goes out and he does just that. He tells people and they see him with clothes on, which is a good thing, right? In his sane mind, sound mind, healed, restored and at peace. And it says that the people were amazed. It's a crazy story, isn't it? That is loaded. I wish I had an hour and a half that we could talk through this. There's so much there. It is loaded with implications and meanings for us. So, so let's talk. Let me, let me end this way. Let's talk about the so what. We've been asking this so what question each week. Like, so what difference does this make in our lives? And, and I spent a lot of time, like, explaining the passage to us. But, you know, like, we got to think, like, what difference does it make? And there's a lot of different ways that we could go with this. You know, like, we could spend time talking about Jesus' power and authority and how, how great and mighty he is, not just over the physical world, but over the spiritual world as well. We could talk about Jesus' timing on things, right? Like, who knows how long this guy, this poor, miserable, demon-possessed man was roaming around in those tombs and cutting himself and crying out. At some point, that was the time and God's timing for Jesus to go heal him. And we could talk about that. We could talk about the spiritual world, right? Like we could talk about like what we as Christians, um, could, how we could be influenced or possessed by demons and how, like, what that looks like. We could dig into all of that. And although all of those things, there's value in talking about any of those things. I want you, I want you to think of a different implication for us from this passage. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of um, one group of people and one other person. Put yourself in the shoes of the townspeople and the man who was ex you know, had, had the demons exercised from him, who was set free and healed. One, one group of people, the townspeople, they saw what happened and they were afraid of Jesus, 
right? They were terrified of him and they wanted nothing more to do with him. In fact, they begged Jesus to leave them. That's the townspeople. The other man saw everything that happened too and he wanted nothing more than to have more time with Jesus. He wasn't afraid of Jesus. He was like compelled by Jesus and he begged him to be able to go with him. And I, and I guess my challenge to you this morning is, like, which are you, you know? Because the truth is, you know, this guy saw, G these people saw Jesus' power and authority in an up uh, close, you know, very, very personal way. But the truth is, like you and I, if we're looking for it, I really believe this, we all have experiences, times in our lives when we're confronted with the awesome power and authority of Jesus too. And that can look really different depending on our lives, you know? Like maybe it looks like, you know, a, a particular healing. Like we've been given a, a diagnosis and somebody's praying, a Christian friend is praying for us, right, fervently. And all of a sudden we go and our scans are clear and we're like, whoa, right? Or, or maybe, you know, it's a provision that God gives us. You know, I lost my job and I'm in dire need. And all of a sudden, like my Christian friend like told me about this job and it's like a perfect fit. Look how God has provided. Maybe it's, you know, a protection from something. Maybe it's a deliverance from something, a, a particular addiction or something like that. Maybe it's a specific answer to prayer. Who knows what it is? Sometimes we recognize these things instantly. Sometimes we only recognize them after a while. And we look back and we go, oh, now I see. Like, I see what God has done. But when we recognize them, there's implications to it, right? Like personal implications for us. Because Jesus has power and authority, if Jesus has power and authority over the visible world, over the natural world, over the physical world, and Jesus also has power and authority over the unseen world, over the supernatural world, over the spiritual world, then he's Lord over everything, right? And if he's Lord over everything, he's also Lord over my life. And that can be hard for us because I like to be Lord over my life. And I'll bet you do too, right? There's implications for us. And so my question to you is, how do you respond to Jesus' power and authority? Like in your own life, when you recognize it, how do you respond to it? One day the Bible tells us, we just sang about this in one of the songs earlier, one day the Bible tells us that every knee will bow at King Jesus, you know, either by choice or by force. But for now, we could ignore him, we could resist him, we could give him no place in our lives, right? We could relegate him to a crazy man, or we could placate him and go, well, yeah, I mean, he was a good teacher, he was really wise, right? I mean, he's one way to God, he's not the only way, but maybe he's one way to God, right? All those are townspeople responses. Remember, we're putting ourselves in their shoes. That's all something the townspeople would say, right? Just ignore him. Just, please, just leave us. I mean, yeah, you're a miracle worker. Placate him a little bit. My prayer is that we would identify with and respond like the man who was set free, the one who was healed, the one who was given peace, the one who responded to Jesus' power and authority with submissive love. Right? You, know, you know what submission is? Submission is like I, like I realize who Jesus is compared to who I am, right? And, and, and I don't ignore him, 
I don't resist him. I don't placate him. I submit to his authority. I submit to his majesty, to his greatness. I bow down to him. But it's not just submission. Even the demons submitted to Jesus, right? It's submissive love. Like that's, that's the differentiation with this guy who was healed. He looked at Jesus and he's like, I just want to be with you more. Like I, I, just let me go with you, please. I have nothing here. You're everything to me, right? I love you because you love me. You saw this tormented, wretched, demon-possessed man who was, you know, tormenting this whole community. And he said, no, I love you. In fact, you're worth more than 2,000 sheep and one man's fortune to me. My prayer for us this morning, this weekend, is that we would respond like that guy, right? And we would go, man, I want nothing more than to be with the one who has power and authority over everything, the natural world and the supernatural world and my world, right? May, may that be the response of our hearts this morning.